Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's really good to see you guys. And uh, we're really, really excited to talk today about Leviticus chapter 16. It is one of our favorite chapters in, in Leviticus, maybe one of our favorite chapters in the whole Bible after looking at it again and again in preparation for our conversation. So let me say a prayer for us, and then we will jump right in. Father God, we're very grateful to be together tonight. Uh, we pause to acknowledge your presence in the many ways that you've been good to us. We say this even recognizing and acknowledging that there are certain parts of our lives that we may, miss were, we may wish were different, uh, parts of our world that we wish were different, and um, we invite you into all those various things, all the happy things, all the sad things, all the things that make us angry. Um, and we pray that you would, in an appropriate way, help us to not so much ignore what's going on outside these walls, but to kind of suspend our attention um, or our focus on such things so that we can, for now, focus on these things. We do thank you for the Bible. We thank you for Leviticus. We thank you for Leviticus 16. We thank you for the many ways that you worked for a really long time to communicate truth uh, to us, your people. And uh, we pray that as we continue to give some time and space for your spirit to work, as we renew our minds on the truth of the gospel in Leviticus, that you would certainly be present in ways that um, can give us confidence in your goodness and in your care for us. We pray your blessing on the rest of our evening. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, welcome back, everyone. Uh, again, it's good to see you. Uh, Mark is gone again, taking care of some various things. Uh, no tragedies. Everything's okay. He'll be back next week. So he misses you guys. He sends his love. And um, uh, we decided Elijah was doing a great job point guarding, but he needed a day off. So um, <laughs> I told him, hey, man, I'd be happy to to, to, to uh, point guard one of these things so that he could just be in the position of weighing in and being asked questions. So that's how we're going to start, Elijah. We've got a few questions. Some of these are about Leviticus, and actually some of these are a bit broader. And so we'll just kind of work through. we got four today. So continue to send in your questions. You've got the note cards that you can fill out back there. I'm sure you could email Elijah during the week. If, uh, if you think of something that you'd like to ask, um, you can reach out to me if you've got uh, information to do that. Here's the first question, Elijah. Kind of a general question. What should I do, but a really important one. What should I do if I'm reading the Bible, but it doesn't seem like I'm getting, getting anything out of it? I think this is a question people wonder generally, and especially when we're trying to engage something like Leviticus. Yeah, this is one I answer a lot, I feel like, too, um, because the Bible is just sometimes hard to mine and totally understand at different parts. Obviously, Leviticus being a really demonstrable aspect of this. So um, in, terms of, in terms of what I would, what I would first advise is, one, um, use other people to help. And I, I say this because so often we think that if we read a book about the Bible that that's not good enough and God's not happy because we're not reading our Bible. Actually, God has gifted people to teach. God has gifted people to preach. God has gifted people by his Holy Spirit in very unique ways. And when you pick up a book, you are picking up something that God has uniquely gifted somebody to write for you, like to be to edifying for you. In fact, um, one of the things that I, I, I will, I've been sharing even is, you know, we, if you guys remember when a lot of those Afghan refugees came in to, to town, our church was was trying to be right on the front lines of trying to help them um, with with some of the basic necessities of life, and so we put together some groups to do that. And my wife and I did that, and I would take um, this this gentleman around, and he did not speak English, you know, and. Like it was difficult because he'd get in the car and I'd be like, hello. And he'd say, you know, hello. But he didn't know what I was saying and I didn't know what he was saying. And so 
it was weird because he got in the car and we'd go on this 15-minute drive, but we couldn't really talk to each other. We'd try to, but no matter how hard I said, how are you, you know, or if I said, what did you do today? He didn't know what I was saying. Now, what we did was we got that Microsoft translation app, you know what I mean? And then we could just speak in the phone and I would, you know, show him what I was trying to ask because if he, he wanted to go to the store or if he needed to go to get his driving license or whatever the case may be, you know, we'd kind of communicate this way. And that mediator right there, that is okay to use as you begin to learn a language that you are not quite familiar with. The reality is the more time I spent with him, the better we got at communicating. And uh, I learned a, a word here or there, but more importantly, we found a way to connect. Now, the truth is with scripture, it's even more, that's even more true that as you engage these, these, uh, these the, the books or resources, even the class like this, as you start to hear um, others help bring light to scripture. It will actually help you engage it more and more as you dive in, as you just are able to sit with it yourself. And so it actually becomes a really helpful way for, for you to, to engage. So, so don't feel like you are cheating on God when you're not reading the Bible for your daily devotions and you're reading something by, by a teacher who God has gifted to actually teach it. Um, now, of course, you should also, also always measure it against Scripture, right? Like Scripture is always going to be the authority over that teacher, um, but but really they can be very helpful, especially in difficult texts that are hard to understand. I will say in general, though, that my favorite way to understand the Bible is by the inductive Bible study method. And if you are interested in knowing more about that, you can actually find it on our website, cco.church/pathways. There are lots of different methods to study the Bible on there, but that we have basically a step-by-step approach for this method in particular. And it will help you, teach you how to mine the scriptures, how to get what it's saying out of it. And um, it, it's a process, you know, but like most good things are, you know? And so uh, that's what I would say to, to that. Just use others around you. This class, I think, is even part of that. But also, um, if you're looking for a specific strategy, that one is a good one. You know, you may, whenever you talk about doing other devotions, I think I probably, I don't know if I've mentioned this in here recently, but I, I know this is true of me. Sometimes if I'm reading another book about the Bible, I will, if it like quotes a long portion of scripture, I'll just skip right over it. I'm not proud of this, but I occasionally do this. <laughs> or if like I'm reading from a, you know, somebody's meditation or whatever, and it'll have verses in the references, I very seldom will take the time to go and look at those. But I think that's part of what Elijah's saying. No, pause, look at those. References to scripture, read those, but let these other words guide you. That's really helpful. And I know for me, the only thing I would add to the good things Elijah said was, I can have a tendency to want to measure whether this is going well based on whether it felt like it went well. You know what I mean? And uh, there's a sense in which we, li- we all know that we live in a culture that trains us to seek immediate gratification. And we all know when we're talking to our children that that's a bad way to evaluate life. But then when we do something like this, if I read the Bible this morning and I didn't get the warm fuzzies or I didn't find something that applied to my life immediately, then it must not be working. And that's just not a very good way to measure things. You need to look at your life over the course of time. When I look at my life over long courses of time and I think about seasons where I was praying the Psalms and reading the Word and and thinking about the things that were in there, it's not that I felt so different in those moments, but it's that my life manifested the character of Christ more naturally when those things were happening. Uh, Here's another one that... um, I'll take a stab at, and then Elijah, you can weigh in on if you want to say anything in addition. How often should I read Leviticus once I actually understand what it's saying? Now, I thought this was an interesting question. It's a little bit different. You know, a lot of times with Leviticus, it's like, I don't even know what I'm reading, so why am I reading this? But then, I suppose thinking about last week's um, teaching and lesson on 
specifically Leviticus chapters 11 through 15, with all the weird laws about like skin diseases and bodily discharge. Once we sort of get that, hey, this is about God teaching his people boundaries, and these boundaries aren't so much the ones that we need to follow because it was always designed to point forward to a clearer revelation of his will in Jesus, like those kinds of things that we taught. I'm guessing the question is, once I know that the whole purpose of these laws was actually not to pay attention to these laws, but to pay attention to stuff that would come later, why should I even engage it? And I think I'd want to say two things to this, and please feel free to even, even think that you think this, what I'm saying is unhelpful if you do. I'd say, first of all, I'm okay with you giving yourself a little bit of... Um, um, I don't know what the word would be, leeway in that if you're reading back through Leviticus 11 through 15 in your sort of daily reading or weekly reading or whatever, I don't know that you need to pay quite as close attention to it as you might want to if you're like reading Philippians 2 or something, all right? So it's okay to read through it and to get a sense of the big picture. And we're not necessarily trying to learn something new every time we read the Bible. Sometimes we're just trying to be reminded of the things that are true that we've forgotten, So if you know something about the passage, let your reading of the passage do you the service of bringing that simple truth back to mind, and then it can actually change the way you live. The other thing I would say, though, is don't skim too much, because we don't know about the wonderful things that are there that we didn't look hard enough to find. I picture like people mining for gold, and I would imagine, I've never done that myself, but I would imagine it's a little bit tedious and frustrating because you just keep knocking rocks down, and most of it's just more rock. But I, am, I, I wonder about the psychology of that moment and how it matches something like this. How, man, but if you just keep on going, you never know when you're going to find gold. You never know when you're going to find a diamond or something like that. So by all means, give yourself some leeway. Focus on the big picture. Don't feel like you have to understand all the, all the details. But man, every now and then, take a closer look because there might be more in there for you than you've found before. This is that bad be, advice? No, it's good advice. This is going to be this is going to be very lame of me so you're going to judge me but my son is super into Minecraft right now and so I've been playing a lot with him and even though it's not actually physical you know I'm telling you when we find a diamond it is the best <laughs> thing awesome. and it takes a while you know so anyways no I totally agree with what you're saying and here's what I would say I try to read the bible through once a year and I know that not not everyone should do that um, not everyone has to or can, uh, but that is something I try to do uh, once a year if I can help it, to, to be able to provide the whole counsel of God in front of my face if I can help it. Um, and so I just think it continues to familiarize yourself. But the connections, I'm telling you, even, if, even as we have studied this book, you know, we were just talking oh back there. Gosh. It's like, I'm already, I'm making new connections that I never saw before. Uh, we were just talking about, we'll talk about this. This dude blew my mind with something he said to me earlier. I don't know <laughs> if we'll be able to recreate it for you, but I teach the gospel of Mark at the college, I've taught it, I don't know, six, seven times every other year. I know the Gospel of Mark really well. And Elijah made a connection from something in our text to a story in the Gospel of Mark that I've literally never heard before. And that's, that's the kind of thing you're talking about. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and we'll get to it. It's about the scapegoat. So, um, but all that to say, there, there's, there's so much that even when you think you have gone to the depths, you have not. And I have heard from most people that um, you know, if you, if you sit down and you force yourself to read just like, you know, a couple verses, let's say five verses, and you spend 60 minutes on that, that the, the most, like the most beautiful things that you will find always come near the end, not at the beginning. It's not the first five minutes, it's not the first 10 minutes, it's near the end when you're like, is there really anything more I can glean from this? And then all of a sudden something pops out and you're like, how did I not see that? So, yep. Okay, um, here's a question for you. This one's a bit more connected to Leviticus. What is it that a person can or can't do if they're unclean? Yes. Um, so it depends on exactly how 
precise you're being with this question, right? If you're asking, um, you know, some things leave somebody unclean more than other things, right? And so that we kind of talked about that last week with some of the different laws. Like if, if, a, if a woman is in her menstruation period, that is a seven-day unclean uh, part of her life that she essentially goes into isolation for. Um, whereas if it's like, if a, if a man and woman are intimate, that they are unclean until that night when they wash and then the next morning they're clean again. And so obviously at some level, it depends on how precise we're being. I would say if you are unclean, the expectations are is that you remove yourself into isolation and you allow yourself time to become clean, whatever those laws prescribe. Now, if the question is, well, what do people do in their isolation? That I don't know. I don't know that the Bible answers that. Um, maybe they, you know, just look at the stars or I don't know, you know, just find something to do while they're bored. I don't know. But um, what I would say in general is the goal is to cleanse themselves so that they can come back in the presence. So maybe just prayer even is what they do, but I don't know. Good. Yeah, so, great. I don't know if you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, not, not the part of it you're talking about. Okay, one more. What are some resources I can use and maybe even purchase that help me see connections between Leviticus and Jesus? I love this because that's one of the biggest payoffs here is finding new things that you're learning about Jesus because you're paying attention to, to a book like Leviticus. And this is a dangerous question to ask people like us because you know there's a lot of good resources out there and we like, we like them all. Um, but I would say that in my, in my opinion, the most valuable type of resource that you could engage is a resource that helps you find other passages that parallel the one that you're studying. And um, there's a number of different types of things that you could do. You could just go get um, a Bible that has, um, like a, a lot of times our Bibles, I think I have a single column Bible, but a lot of Bibles have these two columns like this. Some of them have a little thing in between the two columns that's nothing but reference, cross-references. So whenever you're reading in the Bible, you may be seeing these before. You see like the letter, tiny little letter B. And then you look over in that middle column and you look, you know, at B and it's got another reference for you to look up. And you can just go on a wild goose chase through all the relevant passages. There are other um, resources out there though that can be helpful for this kind of thing. Uh, there's one called Nave's Topical Bible. We might have it in our bookstore, I'm not sure, or in our resource center. A topical Bible is precisely what you think it is. It is, it is a list of, as a topic, and then it has a list of um, all the Bible verses that address that topic. And so if you're studying a book in Leviticus, if you're coming across a theme like sacrifice or offerings, you just go look up all the references to offerings. Another type of resource that might be helpful is um, called a concordance. And a concordance is essentially a catalog of the individual words in scripture and where else you can find that word. And so um, if you're using an English concordance and you come across the word, you know, scapegoat or across the word sin or across the word atonement, then you look up that word in the concordance and it literally has all of the uses of that word there in succession. So there are some other websites um, that we could maybe, I didn't think to put these, you know, on a slide or on your notes, openbible.info is a helpful website where you can just plug in a verse and it will literally just pull up a dozen verses that are about the same kind of thing. So any resource source you can find that's going to help you find other Bible passages uh, that are about the same thing yours is about. I think that's one of the best ways to spend those, you know, 45 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever time you have to give to study the word. I think that's incredibly helpful. It's yeah. good.
Got anything or that good? I think that's great. Okay. Yep. All right. So um, what we'll do today is we, we have one chapter, which is kind of nice because we've been covering these sections where we're dealing with a lot of content. So um, Elijah's going to recap for us kind of where we've been. And then, and then uh, we'll approach Leviticus 16. Probably go ahead and read the whole thing. Try to get a sense of the order of events. And then we'll try to draw out some aspects of the significance of what's going on there. So won't you, yeah, remind us where we've been and get us set up. Okay, I want to do. I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask you guys to talk to me. Okay, what? will it's you? Dangerous. Will you do this? Um, what? what you want me to we... warm them up for you? <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. We, have I done <laughs> this before? You, you guys, you guys up, are gonna or... be so annoyed. Yeah, I'm gonna pick that thing up like Romans. <laughs> you guys are gonna hate me at the end of this. All right, but I'm, I'm gonna ask you to do this. And if I, if you, if I literally. If I don't see your mouth moving and you and I have ever had a personal conversation, I will call you out, all right? So I promise you, you better participate. First thing I want you to do, I'm gonna count to three. I want you to say your middle name. If you don't have a middle name, just go with Jack, okay? All right? One, two, three. Not bad, not bad. I heard Louise. I like it. Okay, now I'm gonna count one to three and I want you to say your favorite color, all right? When I say three, I want you to say out loud your favorite color. If you don't have a favorite color, just go with chartreuse, all right? That's what we're doing. You ready? One, two, three. Okay, not bad. Lovely. Last thing. I'm going to count to three, and I want you to say the word pickle, okay? And if you don't like pickles, you can just say cucumber. It's a pickle without the sauce. So you got two options here, pickle or cucumber. I'm watching you, all right? I see all of y'all. All right, on three, pickle or cucumber, whatever you want. One, two, three. Okay, most of you like pickles, okay. All right, last thing. I promise this is it. I'm going to count to three. You're going to say your middle name, your favorite color, and the word pickle, all right? It's not that complicated. You guys can do it. I know it's late in the evening, but it's not that late, all right? And we're not that old. So again, your middle name, your favorite color, and pickle, all in succession. I'm not going to queue up each one. I'm just going to queue up the whole of it. Are you guys ready? Tony, you ready? All right. One, two, three. Awesome. Look, here's the deal. Nothing you can say is going to be dumber than what you just said. So whatever conversation Elijah wants to have with you, y'all just lean in and talk to him, all right? That's a good setup right there. So <laughs> here's what I want to know. Here, we've been talking about Leviticus. What is the purpose of Leviticus? What have we said the purpose of Leviticus is? Do you remember? To teach us to be holy. Yep, that's definitely part of it. What else? How to enter his presence. Yes, very good. Anything else anybody wants to add? I mean, those are pretty much it. So that's good. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, and I would say the holiness factor is a part of what it means to be in the presence of God. How do we get back into the garden? That is the whole thing. That is the drama that is taking place within Scripture. That is the narrative that the entire thing is based off of. We were in relationship with God, in union with Him, living and breathing in His world, eating of his food, cultivating his garden. And then we were kicked out. The whole purpose of, especially the first five books of the Bible, is trying to answer that question. How do we get back in? How do we get there? And you remember what we talked about, right? Now, the Garden of Eden, it could have been, do you remember where? On a mountain. It could have been on a mountain. It could have been in this place where 
it seems as though most people were going when they were having these close proximity relationships with God, when Moses would go up on Mount Sinai, when Abraham went up on Mount Moriah, when, when Noah settled on Mount Ararat, right? There's, there's this sense in which these people are getting up on these mountains and they're having this close proximity, these, these conversations with God in a way that is unique and special. And so when they're kicked out of Eden, they're kicked out back into the valley. And the question now is that God has decided he's, he's going to come into the valley, but he's going to do so in a way that doesn't try to reduce the fact that there is still this distance. And no matter how close the Israelites are able to get, it is still an arm's length. That there's still something that is holding them back from true union, true fellowship, true beauty of living in that garden once more. But everything in that tabernacle speaks of the garden. The incense of the aroma and the smells, the floral aspects of what fills the space in the room, the 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 candle, the lampstand is it is is made and it's beat into the shape of a tree that sh- sheds light upon the entire room as it looks over and it sees those 12 pieces of bread that remind the people of God that they are not just in this space with God, but they're sharing a meal with him. They are fed and provided for by him. And behind this veil, it is where he himself is, his presence, it dwells there. And the question is, how do we get in? How do we get there? And every single time God is trying to invite people into that presence. Um, he first, well, I shouldn't say invite them. I should say provide the, the, can, the framework for it, right? Like it's, it's one thing when we enter into a marriage, there's a, there's a framework being provided for how we exist together. And the way that God does that with Israel is through covenants. The way he does that with people is through covenants. With Noah, it was through a covenant. With Abraham, it was through a covenant. With Moses, it was through a covenant. With David, it was through a covenant. With Jesus, it's through a covenant. And that's the point of what we're trying to get at is that a covenant has been created and that's what Leviticus is the center part of. It's saying, come listen to these laws, not so that you can see how you must be behave and you must be good, but so that you can see how you can get in, how you can get closer to the fellowship, to that union, to that relationship with God once more, that you can smell of the aroma, that you can remind yourself that there is a garden, that, that you can walk in with God once more, but there's, it's coming, a Messiah is coming, that all of these things are down the line, they're pointing to something different. And that's really what Leviticus is about. How do we get in the presence of God? But it's more than that. It's also pointing to a person that would be the answer to that, to that question. It's giving people a taste of what they would have in the fullness of um, down the line. And so as we look at at Leviticus, um, that is the main point. And it's the center of the first five books. And Leviticus 16 is the center of the book of Leviticus as a whole. It is the climax. And so I'll let Michael start to speak into that. Let's build on precisely that. And so one, one of the things we talked about with Leviticus 16 is we don't just want to come in and be like, guys, Leviticus 16 is so awesome. It's so important. It's so important. It's so important. We actually want to show you uh, the way in which the authors of the Old Testament, the inspired authors who wrote this down, Moses and, um, and those who collected and edited these various things, did so in such a way to draw attention to specifically this point. So I want to talk for really just a few moments. We want to get to the text pretty soon, but we want to frame it well. I want to talk about, for a few moments about the structure of the book of Leviticus, and then Elijah will hit again the, mo- the thing he just mentioned about how all this fits within the larger context of the first five books of the Bible, uh, what Jews call the Torah, or what's sometimes called the Pentateuch, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So if we could, we're going to throw a slide up and, and we want you to look at this. This just provides 
provides a little bit of, of, a, of a flow of the book as a whole. And you'll notice that it's um, designed as kind of a sideways V or a little bit of an arrow. And that's because that's likely something of the structure um, that the original author was trying to communicate. This was a fairly standard way of organizing your thought in the ancient world. It was kind of a form of poem, although to call it a poem doesn't quite get at it. It's a poetic structure. We have our own versions of this. You know when somebody's sounding like Dr. Seuss by the cadence of their, um, their voice and by the rhyming of their words. They had their own ways of communicating as well that draw attention to specific things. And when you look at this, one of the things you'll notice is that we've made our way halfway through the book. In the first seven chapters, we had these sacrifices and offerings, which were really all about how we can, through the person of Moses, enter into the tent of God's presence. So it was about being invited back into God's presence so that we could dwell safely with him. Then we found out very quickly, though, in chapters 8 through 10, that this is a dangerous presence because if you mess with things or try to take matters into your own hands or try to improve on what God has revealed, then you just might find yourself toasted by the fire of God's presence and not in a good way. Do you remember the death of Nadab and Abihu? You remember talking about this? Then after that, we've spent the last couple of weeks, or I guess it was just last week, looking at the commands and degrees about uncleanness in chapters 11 through 15. And now we come to this middle point on the Day of Atonement. I think you guys should have this on your outline. So if you want to write it in your note, note things, that's great. You also have wherever the, whatever, do they get the handouts on the way in or something? Um, the hand. Uh, the handout? I don't know if you guys got that. I don't think you did. Oh, they think, don't? I don't think they have that. I think okay, they just get this. Oh, that's right. I, I should have known that. Well, snap a picture of this or keep writing. <laughs> I can see the top of your heads right now, and they're lovely, except for some of you guys. Anyway, so notice we're at the middle of this, and then as we continue to proceed, we're going to see the same kinds of things that we've been seeing, but in reverse order. So after the Day of Atonement, we're going to have a number of chapters that are, that are mostly more commands and decrees guidelines for how people are supposed to live, followed by a chapter that seems really strange and out of place that draws attention to the significance of the various pieces of, of, um, of furniture in and near the Holy of Holies that remind us of God's presence. And then you have a person who gets put to death because he's not respecting God's holiness. Kind of reminds us what came before. And then the last section is you've got some land, some laws about what to do as you enter into the promised land where God is taking you. So you can kind of see from a global standpoint it begins by talking about entering the tent of presence, and it ends by talking about entering the land of promise. Within that, you've got a reminder that God's presence is wonderful and it brings blessing and life, but it's also dangerous. And if you abuse it, then it's going to result in death. Within each of those, you've got a collection of commands and decrees, and at the very center of the book is the Day of Atonement. So we wanted to show you this, not because we want to go so, so you know, wait, get all into the weeds, but it is, I think, valuable to know a sense of the whole book whenever you're kind of making your way through a specific part of it. And even if not all scholars, and even if, you know, even if maybe Elijah, if he were to write this up, he might've done it a little bit differently, or Mark might've done it a little bit differently. What we all agree on is that the book is intentionally structured in such a way that the Day of Atonement is in the very middle. And in this case, the emphasis is actually not at the end, it is in the middle of this type of framework. Um, so that's, that's Leviticus as a whole and how chapter 16 fits within it. When you want to talk a little bit more about the comment you made just a moment ago about how Leviticus is central within the first five books and that all the, all the more turns up the specific significance of this chapter. Yeah, I think if you were to look at, um, which I should, I should have just done this, I should have made another slide. If you were to do this exact same thing with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it would look very similar and how they parallel in those ways and then they lead into that moment where uh, they, they, they 
coalesce in Leviticus as the central aspect. I mean, even if thinking about it, maybe you can think about the events, right? Again, the Garden of Eden is the place where they are with like the land in which God has given them. And Deuteronomy ends with them going into the promised land. Uh, you know who doesn't go into the promised land? Moses. You know who gets kicked out of the promised land? Adam. And so again, you, you'll actually see these types of parallels running through them as they as they go toward Leviticus. And in the center there, uh, it's, it's all saying, Leviticus, while it might be the smallest book of the five is by far the most important because it gives them the ways in which they actually engage God, in which they get into his presence. The other parts are good. They're helpful. They're narrative. They're history. They're the ones we most enjoy the most. And they got some some amazing stories of courage and and heroics, but they also have some some weird stories of just weird things that I'm not going to talk about from stage because we talked about those things last week a little bit. And they have some some honestly just horrifying stories uh, that we don't quite always are, we're not able to understand. And yet here in the middle is Leviticus and it's actually the key in which we understand all these other aspects. It's actually showing us both God's great holiness, but it's also showing us God's great love. And that's what Leviticus 16 is going to show us. Because when we look at the dangerous nature of God, the question always becomes, why the heck, if God is so loving and good and gentle, could he be this dangerous? And Leviticus is saying, because sin is far more dangerous than you could ever possibly think. Because it has ruined lives. Just like in Genesis, the whole world had to be, had to be moved out, right? Had to be wiped away. And you know what you find in, De- in Deuteronomy even is this reminder to the people that they would be moving away. All the, all the Canaanites, or the, the seven tribes that, or that ultimately were, would pollute the land. And this is part of what what God is trying to help us see that sin is not just an individual thing that we all struggle with. It's a communal thing that perverts our world totally and completely. But there is a way both to be free from it and to enjoy the presence of God. And Leviticus is saying, this is the key. This is how it happens. And it's, it's, it's pointing to something better, but first you have to actually wrestle with the words themselves to be able to make the connections. And I was gonna say too, when you're done with this class, Tomorrow morning, maybe tonight even, read through the book of Hebrews and I promise you that book will make more sense than it ever has before. If you go home tonight, you read that on Thursday or Friday, you read through the book of Hebrews, you're going to be like, oh, that is the exact experience I had uh, when, that, when those connections finally start to make sense because you're realizing that the New Testament isn't just about a nice guy named Jesus who came to save the world. You realize that the entire history of world events as a whole is the drama of God and his incredible love for all mankind. So you want to start to look at the order of events? Absolutely. So let's, um, let's go ahead and take the time um, to read through Leviticus 16. Like I said, most of the time we're not going to be able to do this sort of thing because we're dealing with so much text. But in this case, if in fact we're right, that it's the center of Leviticus, which is the center of the Torah, that it's a pretty important chapter. And even though you all read it before coming in here, it's valuable for us to look at it together again. So I'll read it through from start to finish. I'll keep my comments to myself as I make my way through it. Then really all I want to do is um, provide a little bit of structure to understand this day, because in a way, this, this chapter and the way in which the instructions are laid out has a very similar layout to what we've just suggested about the book of Leviticus as a whole. And all of this is designed to continue to focus us more and more and more on the key central thing that's happening here. So let me read it to you. Leviticus chapter 16 says, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses 
refuses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the holy, most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put the sacred sash, put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and to put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering and to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take the censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood with his fingers sprinkled on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his fingers seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, uh, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all of their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness." Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. The bull and the goat for the sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh, and intestines are to be burned up. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the 10th day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and do not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. 
The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the holy, most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. As, with, uh, as is often the case with Leviticus, the closer the read, the more details you find that you wonder what the heck they mean. Now, what would be fun is just sort of, sort of go through and answer every single question we might have about every single detail. Uh, however, that would take us way too long, and you, I'm sure would come up with a number of questions that he and I probably would be unable to answer at least right now. What we do want to do, though, is I want to go back through the events we just read, sketch the order of the day, Notice the way in which these things are supposed to be laid out, providing a framework for you to think through and be aware of. Uh, one, so that then what we're going to say after that makes sense, but then also so that you can go back and study it yourselves. And then after we have a pretty decent sense of how these events are being ordered and laid out, uh, we'll circle back around and ask, what is the main point of this text? And then what are some additional details that are relevant and what can we learn from them? So looking at the order of events, let's first take kind of a wide scope and look at the day as a whole. We've got a slide we'll throw up for you, and you're going to by now start to notice this very similar structure. There's a couple of um, ways in which the opening of this text parallel the end of this text that are very likely drawing attention to this same sort of structure. So in the very beginning, we have specific mention of the command of the Lord. The command that he's received is, you're not to come in here whenever you want, whatever you want. You better stay away. So you have this command from the Lord to the people through Moses, specifically to Aaron, and it's followed by uh, a comment about the timing. You're not to do this whenever you want. Interestingly enough, now if you come back to the back end of things, it ends with a statement that they did as they commanded, and that follows some clarifications about the timing, 10th day, 7th month, and that sort of thing. Did I just get that backwards? No, yeah, 10th day, 7th month. So it starts with the command and ends with the command. Inside that, you've got a comment about the timing. You're not to do it whenever you want, but you are to do it on this day. Then you've got the sort of preparation for the offerings, followed by the offerings, followed by the cleanup from the offerings. You'll notice there's a little bit of overlap. But you've got very specific instructions about the clothes that you're supposed to wear and the way that you're supposed to wash yourselves. And all of this, of course, has to do with proper respect for the sacredness of this day. This is the day when we are becoming clean. And so therefore, it needs to be reflected in all the various specific things that you're supposed to do. But when you look at this right there, I'm not going to leave this one up much longer because we're going to drill down here in just a second into that very center part. When you look at this, you notice that just as the book of Leviticus is structured in this way, the Leviticus 16 kind of continues that same structure a little bit. And by now, you're not going to be surprised to find my suggestion that when we drill down and look specifically at the offerings in the middle of this one, you're going to find something by now very familiar. Get your pictures if you want, and we're going to go to the next screen. Now take a look at this. Here again is a very simple structure of the offerings. Now he goes through them in a couple of different times to draw out the significance of what he's suggesting. But the order in which these things are supposed to happen is Aaron is to offer a sin offering for himself. Then he's to offer a sin offering for the people. Now remember the sin offering had specifically to do with um, sins that weren't committed with a high hand, not defiant sins. Then in the middle of this, they send the scapegoat away and then he offers a burnt offering for self and a burnt offering for the people. And so you've got these two sin offerings up top, these two burnt offerings on the bottom. And the middle of this is the one goat that was appointed by Lot not to die. And by Lot would be, they just sort of did a version of what we would 
think about like rolling the dice. Essentially, this is the one that was decided by God for this purpose. It was not actually killed, but instead Aaron, the high priest, pressed both hands down on the head of this goat, confessing all the sins of Israel that were then transferred to this goat and the goat ran off into the wilderness far away from the center of the camp. So that's what happened on the Day of Atonement every year. It was highly ritualized. It was highly specific. All these things are pregnant with substantial meaning. And again, what we're going to try to do is not necessarily answer every single curiosity, but instead to make sure that we get the main point and to see if we can't talk through some of the relevant details. So Elijah, why don't you, if you would, try to answer this simple question. What in the world is going on? Like, what's the main idea of what's happening here on the Day of Atonement? Well, to, uh, to beat a dead horse, it is to get into the presence of God. So um, honestly, if you look at verse 16, if you look at verse 16, it actually tells you right there. And what I would say is you could actually bracket 16 all the way to 20. If you're okay writing and you just circle that, that is the purpose, I think, of, of this chapter. And here's what it says. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers uh, seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness to the Israelites. And when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. Okay, so that right there is telling you the purpose. And here's what it's saying in a very simple way. This whole place has to be purified. Every person has to be purified. Even the high priest himself, who is supposed to be the, the most holy representative, has to be purified. Everything does. In fact, I've heard some commentators call Leviticus 16 the great reset. Because this was the time in their year when whoever didn't offer the right offering when they were supposed to, or whoever just didn't even know they needed to offer an offering, now was the time when something was going to happen that would purify God's space and also purify God's people to be able to dwell in his space, to be able to come closer. That's really the main idea of this text. We're getting closer to God. Now, what's interesting is that this, in, in contrast to what we have seen before of these offerings, is not people coming closer to God. It is people preparing the space for God. God's not there when this is happening. It is only after that the, the purification happens that God's presence starts to come in. Now, the difference is, if you remember, the high priest would wear really particular garments, right? The stones, we talked about the stones, we talked about the, the blues and the purples and all these things. But in this specific sacrifice, he actually just goes down to common linen, because before he was supposed to be dressed like a king, but now he is a servant. And what he's doing is he's purifying the space for the true king to come inside. And when he does come inside, it actually is in reverse order than what has been said thus far. So if you remember, when people approached the throne, they would move from outside in toward God. Here, Aaron is starting inside in the most holy place, and he's moving outside. 
because he's, he's purifying from the inside out the pathway to God. And when he's done, you can actually see in verse 24, he shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary area and put on his regular garments. It is only after he's purified the space that he then puts back on his regular garments and he offers up the burnt offerings as an ascension offering, as a, as a one that goes to God and is a pleasing aroma to him, one that is fully consumed both on his own behalf and behalf of the whole people of Israel and because he's home again, because he's there. And now the people serve God with their offerings once more. But this is at first has to purify, purge all the pollution, all the things that have defiled both the people and the space itself, which is important for us to realize that this is not just about forgiving the sins of the people. It's about cleansing the space where God would be. And that's in particularly important for people like us, who both are the people in need of forgiveness and the space by which he would dwell. So that's really part of the, the main things. There's a lot more I could say, but... Yeah, we'll dig into some of that. You know what I'm, I'm makes, making me think of? And um, I think in certain ways, having come through COVID can help us understand some of the Levitical stuff a little bit more than we might've been able to before. And especially if you remember back like summer of 2020, when we're all, be, you know, we've become aware of the seriousness of these things because the school's all canceled and we're all isolated and quarantined and we're all worried about it. And I don't know how many of you got COVID. I don't think it's a loaded question anymore, but I'll go ahead and not ask it in case you feel weird about it. But uh, many of us did. And if you got it early on, you remember, man, the amount of rules that you had to follow in order to be accepted back into society. Uh, it's funny, actually, one, um, so I, I got it that summer, the summer of 2020. If you have children, Children who were in sports in the summer of 2020. And if you remember, like in the middle of the softball and baseball seasons, everything got shut down because of patient zero in Web City. I'm sorry, it was me, okay? I went to a wedding and got COVID. I remember seeing on Facebook, people were like, don't, don't be mean, this person's probably afraid. And I'm thinking, I'm not really afraid, I'm fine. I just can't smell anything. Anyway... <laughs> I remember like I had to call, you know, I had to call, I can't even remember what office I'd call, but you know, I'd, I'd have to call the local authorities and we had to like fill out all these papers and everybody who was in my house had to stay away and nobody could go out. Like they actually even were quarantined for longer than I was. My family was losing their minds. I may be introverted, but my, introverted, but my wife and son are not, but nobody's going anywhere. And I still remember that day we're finally all free. And it's like, okay, the authorities say we're clean. We now can go back into the world and we're no longer a danger to other people. I think about that in this regard. It's obviously not exactly the same, but there's a sense in which sin is so terribly bad that it has polluted everything. It's not just the people who become polluted, it's the stuff. And so we're just gonna clean apps. I love the beautiful imagery that you're drawing attention to. If I'm understanding what you're saying about the uniqueness of this is it's almost, yeah, Aaron's into the presence and then back out of the presence, clearing the path for us to be ushered into a safe place with God. And that's actually a word that I think is valuable to think about. Um, so all that to say, the one word I'd add to what Elijah's saying is there's a sense of it's safe for us to be here now. We can come back into where we belong and we don't have to worry. And it's not because God is no longer holy, but it's because we are no longer dirty. And that's the beautiful thing that's going on at the heart of this. Elijah, there's so many details, so we can only pick a few of them, but what are some of the other details that you think are interesting that you'd wanna draw out and explain the significance a little bit further? Yeah, I've gotta pace myself here because there's so much that as I was studying this for myself even, I was like, wow, that is awesome, okay. First off, I think even to his point, there's context given in the first several verses. Remember, this is not, this narrative is happening so close to the death 
of those two priests, right? And so the whole point is their bodies have polluted this space. When they get them out and they go back into it, um, that's part of what we're talking about here is that everyone's like, so how do, how, like, how could we ever stand in the presence of God? And, and God says to Aaron, like, here's the way to do it. And then they get back in. Now, the, the key that I want to, I want to key on, or the, 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 the topic yeah. that I want to key in on is the goat, the scapegoat. Okay. Now, there's a couple different things, but the first thing I'm going to say is this, in my research for this, is that what I, what I learned is that the two goats that they find, so if you remember, there's two goats, right? One is being given for a sin offering, a purification offering. The other one is the one that is sent away, right? And so those goats, what they would do is, those are, that's really one, one type of thing happening. Like it's, 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 saying something symbolic that is trying to use, it's using two goats to, to communicate the same sort of reality. And so here's what I mean by that. They would actually find goats that looked almost the exact same because they didn't want to separate what was happening inside the sacred space with what was also being communicated by sending the other one away. At one level, the, the goat is, is being killed and his blood is being used to purify the people. That's what the goat's blood's for. It's to purify the people. And ultimately, the other goat is the one that they're going to press on, and they're going to speak all the sins, the trespasses, all that stuff, onto the goat's head, and they're sending that one out into the wilderness. So those, that really is, it's trying to communicate the same sort of idea. At one level, you are a purified person, and at another level, you are no longer held accountable or guilty or charged for your sin because it has been put onto somebody else. It's been put onto something else, right? That has been sent away. Now, the interesting thing about this goat language. So how many of you guys, uh, if you look at verse eight, it says, he cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. How many of you guys have scapegoat there? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you guys have Azazel? Okay, a lot of you, okay. So this is an interesting thing about this, okay? So there's debate about what exactly is happening in this text here. So depending on your translation, it's going to say something a little bit different. It's also mentioned in verse 10 and in verse 26, scapegoat or Azazel. Now, there are three main interpretations of this. The first one is that Azazel is actually a demon or some sort of of leader of fallen angels or something like that. They're sending the goat out to Azazel. The other uh, interpretation of this is, is that it's the goat that goes away. In Hebrew, it's the goat that goes, goes away. It's kind of what it's saying is how it could be translated there. And so scapegoat is used instead of that. Um, the third idea is this idea that the scapegoat is going into the wilderness, the, that the words can be translated from different roots to actually mean that they're going out into like the wilderness, the desert, the rocky place to be ultimately killed. Um, the general consensus among scholars is that it, it should be Azazel, that it actually should be this demonic figure by which the goat is going out to. By which or to which? To which. Okay. To which. And the, what, what it's saying is, uh, in fact, if you look at Leviticus 17, you can actually see, uh, let's see, where is that? Say that. Verse 20, well, the wrong chapter. Verse 7. Uh, yes, it says, they must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols. That is actually demons, goat demons. Uh, it might even say that in your notes there. Um, to whom they prostitute themselves. 
Y'all be watching out for those goat demons, all right? That's what you came here tonight to be told. (laughs) So an interesting aspect of this text. So part of the question is, well, what is it saying? Um, I will be honest with you. I, I tend to agree with that general consensus. It does seem to me that a goat is being sent to Azazel. And this goat in particular has the sins of the people on it. So the question is, what's going on here? And some people get a little nervous about even that because they're like, are they making a sacrifice to a demon? Like, what's going on? And I can tell you that's not what's happening because it's been prohibited over and over and over again throughout, throughout the Old Testament. What most people actually think is happening is they think that just like we talked about, right? God is not on top of a mountain anymore, right? He's come down into the valley, but he's brought the mountain with him. And now the mountain travels around with him. And so what we've talked about is in the Holy of Holies is God's sacred space, but the farther you get from that proximity, it actually becomes death. It actually becomes chaos. It becomes disorder. That's where sin has entered into and where it reigns. But the closer you get to God, God snuffs that sin out. So out into the wilderness, that's where in some ways this demonic figure is. And the question is, well, what does he do with this goat? Well, we don't know exactly what we do with the goat, but what tradition says in my research, it says that actually what they would do is as they sent this goat out, they would find a place where it would run off a cliff and kill itself so that the goat could never return, never bring the sin, never bring the defilement back into the camp. And what I was asking Michael about earlier, I was like, is this why the demons go into the pigs and the pigs run into the ocean? In the life into of the Jesus. sea, I should say. Yeah. You um, might say, you might see the context for it. Yes. You guys remember Jesus one time heals this guy who's got these legion of demons in him. And in the story, it's kind of strange. He's, they're like, don't send us out into wilderness places. Send us into the pigs, which is strange. But then right. Jesus sends them into the pigs. And what do they do? They run into the ocean. They Off run the into or the yeah. sea. They run to this place uh, that, that essentially death, where, where it's very much considered to be where death and chaos and disorder happen, uh, was within the watery places. So that's a very common theme throughout scripture. You'll see, even in Daniel, beasts rise from the sea. And in Revelation, you see this imagery a lot. And Jesus calms the sea, his sovereignty over those things. So anyways, um, I don't know if that's a for sure connection or not, but it's one thing I was thinking about as I was researching this. And I was like, man, that makes sense because I could never figure out why they run off the cliff. I never understood exactly what what the purpose of that was. Uh, But if it's in light of this, because the way that even Mark talks about those spirits, you know what he calls them? Impure, unclean spirits that are are in people. And ultimately, when he sends them into the pig, they, they run off the cliff and into the sea. So anyways, the whole point of this, what I want to come back to, again, see, I told you I could just ramble on about this stuff, but this is the most important part. The goats themselves, as one unit, don't separate them, as one unit, is a substitutionary atonement. They are atoning for the people at the cost of themselves. One is being killed so that the blood can purify the space and the people. The other one is receiving the sins of the people and being sent to be killed off into the wilderness. And in so many ways, this is pointing us to Christ. But what I want you to see is that this imagery, this is one thing I read this week, again, that just left me honestly in just a worshipful mindset. You know what I mean? Um, because this author that, that I was reading, he was, he was um, um, talking about how a substitutionary atonement is actually all throughout the Torah. And if you look in Genesis, you can see it. If you remember, when Benjamin is being held by Joseph, And Joseph's like, hey, I'm not giving Benjamin back. And Judah says, take my life then. Like, I will give you mine, but this is my father's favorite son. It is from his last wife, the wife he loved. His other son is gone. Please take mine. 
If you look at Abraham, there's, there's this, again, in Isaac, this substitutionary aspect. And, and what he says, and this is what I never thought of before. He says, this is in part why he thinks Adam became such a failure. Because when Eve sinned, what Adam should have done was given his own life to purify her. But he didn't. He joined her sin. And this is what makes Jesus the true better Adam because he gives his life for the bride and his blood covers all of those things. And he brings resurrection where death once reigned, life where death once reigned. And it just blew my mind. But this is, again, the day of atonement. It's bringing all this to the surface. It's bringing it to the top. And we're, at, we're sitting here saying, I don't understand it all. And God's like, trust me, there's a, there's a reason. It's pointing to something more beautiful. And we'll get to more of what it's saying about Jesus. But, but this part in particular, that goat, is so central to this text and how it's being applied to the people and to the space and to everything it's, it's doing. And it, and it means something for us, doesn't it? Amen, man. And I, I, I only want to mention something very similar about that same detail. And I think it's fitting that we really spend so much time talking about this goat, the goats of these offerings, because as we said, they really are the center of the whole thing. And, you know, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to clarify something that probably doesn't need to be clarified for most of you, but I want you to be fully aware of what is and isn't going on here and how it relates to what you may hear out there. And one of the things that, whether or not you've seen this, it's sort of out there, is that sometimes Christians want to downplay the significance of the death of Jesus because it's like bloody and gory and kind of weird and embarrassing. And people want to certainly downplay the significance of the wrath of God and the death of Jesus being about taking care of the wrath of God, because it seems like, well, does that mean God just has a temper, and does God just have to have his kill, and it just all seems very gory and and mean, and like, why don't we just look at Jesus as this wonderful teacher of truth? Sure, he died, that's fine, whatever, but that isn't even the biggest thing that he did. It's more about the way in which he showed us how to live, and some of these different kinds of things. And I remember I was in a conversation with some people one time, and I was trying to, a buddy of mine, and I was trying to say, no, like, you don't have the gospel if you don't have the death of Jesus. If he doesn't die, you don't have what it is we're here to find. And he actually made the point from this text. He said, look, what actually happens is the culmination of the Day of Atonement. It's not that a goat dies, it's that a goat lives, and he just sends him out into the wilderness. And I totally think my friend was missing the point. And so I want to clarify precisely what he said and to really put one more um, kind of side comment on it, and that is that I think some of what's happening here is the reason why you have these two goats representing the one thing but doing different things is just to double down and make sure you don't miss the point. And in some ways, the goat that goes out into the wilderness is a visual representation of what is happening in the other sacrifices. In case you were somehow missing that these sacrifices make it possible for us to enter God's presence, sinful and unclean though we may be on our own, in case that wasn't clear, we're going to send this goat out of the wilderness. What does it have to do, anything, do with anything? It shows you that what's happening today is that everything in you and in your communities and in your places of living and employment and recreation, everything in us and in our context that keeps us from the presence of God is being sent far away so that there's no longer any barrier for us to enter into his presence. And this, as Elijah said, takes us forward to Jesus. And so we'll go ahead and engage that question. I know we're running out of time a little bit. How does this text help us see Jesus more clearly? What it helps us see 
at least in part, is that while Jesus did a number of incredible things, I love the teachings of Jesus and I try to pattern my life on them. I love the miracles of Jesus and I find them incredibly impressive and confidence instilling when I think about what I'm giving up to follow him. I love the the times when Jesus showed compassion to people who were in need. I love the times when Jesus shows up the religious leaders who think they're smarter than him. But at the end of the day, the primary thing that Jesus does for us The primary thing, and I'm not separating, but I'm making a distinction. The primary thing that Jesus does for us is he dies for our sins, takes upon himself the just penalty, takes upon himself the wrath of God so that we can be restored to his presence, so that we can be reconciled to the Father and experience all the good things that he has for us. So there's a lot of wonderful things to celebrate about Jesus, and I'm not interested in downplaying a single one of them. They're all incredible. But man, if we lose the blood of Jesus, then we lose the centerpiece of why we're here. We lose the things that Elijah's been talking about the whole time, that this portable garden that we're invited back into is actually accessible to us because of the greater sacrifice that takes us beyond even what we see in Leviticus. So what else would you like to draw out with respect to how this day uh, points forward to Jesus in any way? This is where, again, reading Hebrews, it draws all the connections for you. Um, and I almost don't want to say them because I don't want to ruin it for you. <laughs> I want, especially 9 and 10, yeah. Yeah, it's like you, you will read, especially Hebrews 9 and 10, and the lights will come on in ways that you just never realized before, if you have never done this before. If you have, you already know what I'm talking about. But, <laughs> but when I was in college, I took the class Hebrews, and uh, actually Chad Ragsdale, I don't know if you know, guys know him or not, he taught that class. It was my favorite class that I took at, at Ozark because it was the first time the Bible made sense to me. It was the first time all of these things made a difference. It's why they happened. It's who they were pointing to. And the point is that well, even what Hebrews talks about is that none of these things, none of these things made things pure in the ways that they were supposed to. They were always pointing to the only one who could. It's why even when you look at these moments of substitution throughout the, the Torah, you know, when Moses, when Moses comes down and he sees that they have built this golden calf and God is like, I am going to wipe them out. And Moses says, take my life instead. God never takes the substitutionary atonement. And it's because he always has in mind to become the, the, the substitution himself. He always has in mind say, no, I'll provide the lamb. Uh, He always is the person that he's pointing to this thing. And this is what he's inviting us to through the gospel. This is the gospel that Christ so, that God so loved the world that he gave his son so that when you believe in him, when you trust in him, your life becomes purified by his blood and it becomes the stage for his glory to be enjoyed and seen. Your weaknesses become stages for his strength and your life becomes the the light unto the world. And here's the truth is that every part of this world is God's. It always was. The Garden of Eden was a centralized location that God created to enjoy space with him. But the truth is, the cultural the mandate, the commission to Adam was expand this place across the entire cosmos. Everything is God's. God will fill everything one day, especially when Jesus returns. And the truth is that those who will be left standing when the light finally comes are those who have that light within them. All darkness will be gone. This whole place will be renewed back into the garden. And the Day of Atonement is one small picture, 
one small aspect of this portrait that is being shown to us so we can stand in the wonder and awe of God who was able to paint this thing throughout all of history. This isn't like J.K. Rowling coming in writing an incredible novel that all these parts connect or Sherlock Holmes. You're like, wait, how did they do that? This happened in history. These things were a part of a narrative that nobody had control over except him and him alone. And so being able to see how these things coalesce into the person and work of Jesus is is so precious, so meaningful. And that is why I don't want to give you much more outside of go read Hebrews 9 and 10, just even if you just do 9 and 10, so that you can understand how the Bible connects and stand in awe of what God has done throughout history and even in this moment right now. I'll echo that restraint. I love that. Do what Elijah says. Um, wonderful. Okay, um, I'm almost want to just cut it off there, but I do think we have a couple a couple of additional moments. So I have one more question that I may ask, but you guys talked to us today earlier, so that was wonderful. So we're going to try something that we haven't tried in a number of weeks, and if it doesn't work tonight, it's fine. I'll just assume that you're so moved by Elijah's rich words that you find yourself in deep contemplation of the mysteries of God and his love for you. But just in case... You're done contemplating. Uh, does anybody have any questions about this text that you would like to go ahead and ask right now? And we'll see if we can't speak into some of those things with the few moments that we have left. Is there a connection between the scapegoat sent into the wilderness and what Jesus did in the three days he was in the tomb? I don't know that there's an explicit connection. Um, I think that, uh, so that, you know, Jesus was, he died on Friday and then he was in the tomb. His body was in the tomb on Saturday and then he was rose on Sunday. And uh, there's a statement in, uh, you know, one of Peter's letters and there's some comments that Paul makes in Ephesians uh, that, um, and, and also in one of the Timothys that leads to the idea that Jesus kind of went down to hell or went down, really it doesn't say hell, it says the place of the dead. And so there's a lot of historical teaching that emerges from these various texts. And if you want to look up any of these things, the specific idea is called the harrowing of hell, H-A-R-R-O-W. And I know you guys, if I were you, I'd be making fun of me in your head when I do this. I've done it before. The Wikipedia entry is not terrible on the harrowing of hell. It's a decent guide to some of what's going on. So I think that Jesus essentially went down to the realm of dead souls and proclaimed victory over evil and took with him those that were ready for God's presence. And then he ushered them into God's presence. Um, I'm not sure I would draw a specific connection between that and the scapegoat going into the wilderness because there's... Um, I don't think that the point of Jesus descending to the dead has anything to do with him experiencing the punishment. But it's worth thinking about. It's worth considering whether there's maybe a little bit more there than I've seen. Because the, you know, this, this goat does go out into the far reaches of the world, away from God's presence. Jesus really does go down into the grave. I'd be a little bit more inclined to connect it to the burial of Jesus as an important facet of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 than I would what he does on Saturday. But maybe that's your point. Well, yes, right. But as soon as Jesus dies, I mean, it's, it's taken care of. But I see your point, that he's bearing our sin down to the depths. I'm just not sure that the new... I will say this. The New Testament doesn't draw out the emphasis of Holy Saturday in precisely that way. But that doesn't mean it's a wrong idea. If that idea actually leads us to celebrate the truth of what Jesus has done for us, then I would probably regard it as a wise one to think through. Yeah, great question. Good. 
I think in general, one way to look at the offerings, one way to look at the Old Testament as a whole is like a telescope where it's, you can see kind of what it's pointing at, um, but it, it's not always going to be like what your eye is seeing until you get there and you start to look around. So in some ways, all of these things are pointing to Christ, but they're not going to be as precise and explicit as maybe what you anticipated it to be when you were looking through the telescope. But once you're actually there and you start looking around, you're like, oh, that makes sense. You know? And so at some level, um, I would say, you know, th- and this is kind of what I think we even, we even talked about in our first um, class here is when, when Jesus says, explaining the scriptures to, to the men as, as they walk on the road to Emmaus. And he says, all of this is about me. Like, if you just look, all of this is about me. Um, I think in some ways that really is a, a good way to describe it. So the, the explicit line-to-line aspects are not always going to be there, but certainly th- the idea of a scapegoat is definitely pointing to Christ, right? Absolutely. And so from the telescope aspect analogy, um, hopefully that makes sense of some of those things. And what I will say too is what will enliven your Bible study, going back to the first question, is reading it through the lens of how this is pointing to Christ, how, it, how this was actually um, paving the way for us to understand what what Jesus would do uh, through and in and just in God's world as a whole. So, Which comes back to read Hebrews. Yeah, read Hebrews. Good. Okay. Uh, anything else? Okay, one last thought and then we'll leave. I'm going to say something I've literally never, bef- never said before. Um, I want you to let your self-talk be saturated with Leviticus. That's my charge to you. So I want you to, this week, try and think about how you talk to yourself. We all talk to ourselves all the time. And I want you to try to become aware of some of the filters that you utilize to see yourself and your place in the universe. We're all doing this all the time. We just usually aren't aware of it. I want you to try to become aware of it. What ideas are driving the way in which you're engaging your world? What ideas are driving the things that you do, the way you respond to the stimuli around you, the thoughts that you have, the feelings that you have, the way specifically that you think about yourself? And as you identify those, I want you to think, what would Leviticus have to say to this? And to begin to allow the commands of God, God's desire for you to be in his presence, God making a way for you to be clean, to take over the untrue ideas that you may have picked up from just bad habits or the world around you. So again, let your self-talk be saturated with Leviticus. There's some weird advice. Let me pray for us and then we'll be done. God, thanks so much for the opportunity again for us together. I thank you for uh, just, Elijah and I both are so grateful for so many people who are interested in reading your word. We're grateful to be lead students in the room as you try to engage you and your presence and the things that you do. We don't always feel your presence, God. And we know that at some level that's by design. You don't want us to get addicted to the feeling. You'd rather us seek your actual presence. So we do acknowledge that you've given us so many different things to draw our attention to you, including the Bible, including each other. And so we prayed that you would help us to carry a sense of your presence throughout our days and to allow the way we see the world to be driven by the truth that you revealed and to not necessarily evaluate everything based on how it's making me feel or whether I'm getting whatever it is that I think I want, but, rather, but, but based on whether in this moment we are invited to come into your presence and then to go out from your presence to invite others in as well. Help that to be a grid through which we see our days. We pray this blessing in Jesus' name. And we all together said, amen. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.